pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. Uh, Some of you who know me well will know that many years ago, before I came out to Malaysia, I was seriously considering a career in the British Armed Forces. And one of the best ways to find out what it's like, uh, life as a soldier in the British Army, while you're at university, is to join the local officer training corps. It's kind of a club uh, that they put on for those who are interested in signing up for the Army after uni. But to get into that club, it's not as simple as just simply signing down your name. You have to go for an assessment weekend. So I went. uh, They gave me a medical checkup. Uh, They had me talk about a few things in a small group to test out my social skills. And, And all those little tests went okay. But then they tested my physical fitness and endurance. And as you can probably tell, that's when things started to go wrong. They split us up into small teams, and they introduced us to their local monstrous obstacle course. It had the usual things, the cargo nets that you had to crawl under through the mud, uh, the balance beam that you had to run over without falling off. But the worst obstacle of all was this eight-foot wall that you had to climb and clear without any assistance whatsoever. You can probably tell I'm not much of a climber, but I was with a group of guys that I'd only just met, and I was a proud young fool. So when we started discussing this course with our team leader, I thought I'd share my extensive experience, having done some rock climbing down the local gym, having already abseiled a 40-foot tower's walls. (sighs) No problem. I'll get over it in a heartbeat. And then, of course, the test came. Our team leader went first, and he cleared every obstacle without even breaking a sweat. And then it was my turn. I got over the balance beam, just under the cargo net, and then I hit the wall, Uh, quite literally, because I actually bounced back right off it. (laughs) I tried to pull myself over the top. I just grabbed it, and nope, it just wasn't happening. And my team at the side watching were furious. They could see that despite my boastful words, I was failing miserably. It was clear that I lacked any experience whatsoever in how to climb a wall. Not only that, if I didn't get over that wall, then the whole team were going to fail the assessment. It looked like game over. And then suddenly, as all hope seemed lost, my team leader appeared at the top of the other side of the wall, and he put his arm down. He was a very strong guy, and he literally grabbed my arm, and he, in his own strength, pulled me over this wall. And those who were assessing us, they just kind of turned a blind eye. They just pretended that they didn't see it. It was a really humbling moment for me, as my team leader saved my skin, as he got me through that course and to the finish line, despite my own obvious shortcomings. Pride comes before a fall. As we come to our verses in Luke today, we see Jesus' disciples coming up short again and again. And just like I was totally dependent on my team leader, really, to get through the course, so we will see how they and we, as Christians, are totally dependent on Christ to keep on going in faith, serving him as our Lord to the finish line. We're coming to the end of Jesus' discourse in the upper room. He's just instituted the Lord's Supper, reminding the disciples that to be our saviour from sin, it would mean his own body being broken, his own blood being shed, him laying down his life for our sakes. And yet we saw last week the disciples' response so inappropriate. 
They started to fight over whom amongst them would be considered the greatest. Despite Jesus having just told them his greatness would be shown through the most costly service and sacrifice. Well, things don't improve as we come to these verses. The disciples continue to mess up as Jesus patiently prepares them for the darkness of the cross. We see first that they are needing protection, but responding in pride. They are in need of protection, but they respond in pride. Come with me to verse 31. And let's read this. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Uh, Simon, Simon Peter, Jesus' chosen leader for his disciples, the, the first amongst many brothers, well, now Jesus tells him directly as the leader of a great danger that all the disciples were facing at this time, that Satan demanded to have them. Uh, the you in verse 31 demanded to have you, that he might sieve you like we. Those are plural. They refer to the group. It's not just Peter uh, who's in danger here. Now, Satan has attempted to hinder Jesus' ministry over the course of Luke's gospel. We've seen that uh, as demon-possessed folk have fallen before him as Satan himself has sought to tempt Jesus away, offered him all the kingdoms of the world if he would just turn his back on the cross. And now we see that Satan's tactics are going to shift. He's no longer concerned just with Jesus, but with the disciples as well. We're told Satan wanted to sift them like wheat. It's an idea that comes from Amos 9, verse 9. Uh, God speaks of a terrible judgment that's going to come upon Israel, and Amos uses these words to describe it. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. They are words of total destruction, a, a catastrophe through which nothing actually survives. And so that was Satan's plan for Simon Peter, that he and his disciples would come to nothing. Uh, they would fail in the mission Jesus is going to entrust to them to be his witnesses, testifying to him as God's king, able to save us from sin in every way. Well, Satan wants to destroy the disciples before they've even got onto the mission field. And the only one who stood in his way was Jesus himself. See verse 32? Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The only thing that would save Peter from failing in his faith completely is Jesus' protective power for him through prayer. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See, that, that is what Satan wanted to destroy. Not, not Peter's physical body, but that which is so much more vital, his spiritual faith, his ability to continue trusting on Christ as his saviour and king, no matter what he might face. See, Jesus already knows there will come a time very soon when it will seem like Peter's faith has failed completely. See what he says again in verse 32. He says to Peter, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew Peter would turn away turn away from him soon enough. But he also promises that because he is for Peter, because he is praying for Peter, Peter would repent and believe on Christ again. And when he had done that, he was to go and encourage his other brothers to do the same, to keep them from losing faith completely. 
And yet, dear Simon Peter, ever the boastful, confident one, see how he responds to Jesus? Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. See, in the security of the upper room with Jesus and amongst his friends, Peter is so bold in his affirmation of loyalty to Jesus. I'll never compromise. I'll never forsake you, no matter what. Jesus knows better. Verse 34, he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Boastful Simon Peter would that very night deny that he even knew Jesus three times. As we will see next week when Jesus goes to his trial, to his death, and and others ask Peter at that very moment, "Do, do you know him? Are you with him? And Peter turns away for fear of even being associated with the Lord who is now considered a condemned man. Beware, friends. Pride comes before a fool. See, Peter, he had so much confidence in himself. He he brushes off Jesus' warning here that if it were not for Jesus' own prayers against Satan's schemes, Peter would succumb for good. His faith would fail completely. And yet Peter is so confident in himself. And that is a risk for us too, as God's people. Now, of course, we're not Peter. We're not hours before denying Jesus on the cross. But we are just as dependent on on Jesus to keep our faith from failing. We're told, we're encouraged in Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died But more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. It is Jesus' intercessory work that keeps us going in faith as his people, not us simply carrying on in our own strength. You see, the problems begin when, like Peter, we tell ourselves, I am so strong. My faith is rock solid. I will never compromise. We stop looking to Christ for assurance in the face of our sin, and we tell ourselves, hey, look at what I'm doing for him. I'm prominent in my growth group. I'm so active in that sermon team. I've signed up for Smago, which you should do. (laughs) I'm strong. Nothing's going to bring me down. But that kind of boasting, it does not build us up in faith. It puffs us up in pride. And pride comes before a fall. If we're not relying on Christ, if we're not continually, joyfully rooting our security in him, soon enough we will stumble, we will compromise, and having taken our eyes off him, having taken our security away from him, we will be tempted to believe, game over. I've blown it. God could no longer be for me. Friends, either we will persevere with Christ as our security or we will have no lasting security at all. We come to the disciples' second blunder in verse 35. Suffering to come, but preferring to fight. Suffering to come, but preferring to fight. Can you read with me verse 35? And Jesus said to them, when I, was, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Now, if you've been with us 
since we started this series in Luke, you might remember Jesus, what Jesus is referring to here, how back in Luke 9, he, he did send out the 12 on this mission to, to witness to him as God's king now come, who had come to bring in God's kingdom, to bring the promise of sins forgiven, the promise of, of life with God again through faith in him. And Jesus reminds his disciples how when they, they went out on that mission, they did not have to take any provisions whatsoever. He told them, you take nothing for that journey because they could rely on the hospitality of others as they went from town to town. Luke 9, verse 4, coming up. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. That was the command. Just go from house to house and you will be looked after. Jesus asks them now, after that mission, did you lack anything? And they respond, verse 35, nothing. They didn't need their own provisions. Just as Jesus had promised, they are welcomed into the homes of others. But now, Jesus tells them everything's about to change. See verse 36? He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. Jesus says the time for being able to rely on others is over. Now let the one who has provisions take them. And you see how extreme he gets, end of verse 36? And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. I mean, that is extreme. Exchange your cloak, the very shirt off your back, for a sword if you don't have one. Now, some people have taken Jesus' words here as a, a tacit approval for Christians to own weapons in the name of self-defense. Now, it would be very strange for Jesus to be speaking into that question here, though, to be promoting his disciples and getting armed up to the teeth. Given that just down in verse 51, if you look there, we see when he's being betrayed and arrested, and the disciples, they do respond by taking up swords against his captors. One of the, uh, the, the guards of the priests loses his ear as a result. Jesus rebukes them. He's not promoting his disciples to take up physical arms here. He's using extreme language to make a very simple point. A crisis is coming when the time for relying on others will be over. Please prepare for it. And what is the crisis? Well, we're told in verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. One of the darkest promises God has ever made is about to be kept, says Jesus. Referring back to the Old Testament, what we read earlier in Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant who would be crushed for the sins of others. Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Just as God had promised all along, Jesus as his king, the true suffering servant, is about to be numbered with the transgressors. As he is accused by his enemies of crimes he had never committed, as he brought up on trumped-up charges so that they could get their wicked way, they could do away with him to death. And yet God spoke for Isaiah so many hundreds of years before of this very day. It's all part of God's awesome plan. For Jesus, his righteous, sinless son, through his death to take every sin upon himself at the cross so that sinners like us 
might be washed clean through faith in him. Jesus is making it loud and clear to his disciples, as was promised from so long ago, I must suffer and I must die. Get ready for it. But the disciples do not want to get ready. They don't want to think things are changing. They don't want to believe that the time is coming when they can't rely on others. They don't want to face suffering and fear. They don't hear it, and they respond instead. Verse 38, and they said, Lord, Lord, here are two swords. In their lack of understanding, in their own denial, they say to Jesus, we're armed, we're ready, bring it on. Despite having made clear Jesus' kingdom is not against flesh and blood, it's against the power of Satan, who wants to destroy them. It's against sin and death, and the only way that those greatest of enemies will be defeated is as Jesus goes to the cross to pay for our sins so that we do not have to. But the disciples, they want to strap on swords. They weren't hoping for a suffering king who would die to save his people. They were hoping for this triumphant king who would defeat his enemies in military might. Not that two swords really stood a chance against the might of the Roman Empire anyway. Jesus dismisses the idea very bluntly. End of verse 38. It is enough. In other words, that's enough nonsense about swords. He would be numbered with the transgressors. He would know suffering before glory as God's king. But the disciples want to fight. Beware of unrealistic expectations, friends, for the Christian life. Uh, thinking that being a Christian means living a victorious life in the world's eyes right now, just as the disciples want to, rather than service and suffering where necessary for Christ's sake. I, I read a, a book review just this past week. It was written by Jen Oshman from the Gospel Coalition in the United States. Uh, she's reviewed the latest supposedly Christian number one bestseller. It's called Girl, Stop Apologizing. A shame-free plan for embracing and achieving your goals. If you see your daughter with a copy of this, do her a favor. If you have an industrial-sized shredder at work, <laughs> use it. If not, kerosene and a match works just fine. Either way, get rid of this book. Here are some of the quotes that Jen, as she reviewed it, highlights. This is what this book says. We'll go back one slide. This is what this book says about living the Christian life. Okay, here we go. All that really matters is how bad you want your dreams and what you're willing to do to make them happen. The real you is destined for something more, your version of more. Like Lady Gaga says, baby, you were born to be this way. It's time to become who you were made to be. And how are we told what is the first step to becoming the better you? First, learn to love yourself well and give yourself credit and then reach for more. It sounds triumphant, doesn't it? Powerful in the eyes of our world. But as Jen points out in her review, this is so far from Jesus' words about being his disciples. Those who would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Or as we saw last week, those who wish to be great amongst you must become like a servant. We do have an awesome future to look forward to in Christ, but that is not promised to us in this fallen world now. Just as Christ endured the cross before he entered his glory, so we must endure for him in this fallen world. 
As we look forward to his incomparable rest to come, don't have unrealistic expectations for the Christian life. Don't believe those who foolishly lie, who would seek to distract you from serving him faithfully and where necessary suffering for him faithfully as we put him and others first, who would have you forsake him for a comfortable life in the here and now only to stand ashamed without a place in his eternal rest. Hold fast to Christ and to his word and keep on enduring for him. Now we come to the disciples' final blunder in these verses. Praying for perseverance. Nope. Pillow time. Verse 39. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So they now leave the upper room, and they take a short walk across the city to the Mount of Olives, and as they arrive, he commands the disciples to pray. Verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, Jesus knows they're now entering an even more critical time when they will, be at, they will be tempted to abandon their faith completely, to abandon Jesus as they witness him captured, beaten, and put to death. He tells his disciples, be alert, pray. Pray to God that you might persevere through the darkness to come. But they weren't the only ones who needed to pray at this point. See verse 41? And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus begs his Father in heaven to spare him from the pain to come, from having to drink down the full cup of God's wrath upon our sin, to be separated from the Father that he has enjoyed perfect, loving relationship with for eternity past. I lost my father to cancer when I was eight years old. I know the great pain of being cut off from a father whom I knew and I loved for just eight years of my life. Can you imagine the pain Jesus knew? Being cut off from his father as he takes on our sin, the father he had known for eternity past? We cannot imagine it. It is too great. And yet, despite the immense suffering he would face, Jesus ends his prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He doesn't compromise. He resists the temptation to turn away from the cross. We must not underestimate the sheer dread Jesus feels in this moment. Luke's told us, through Jesus' words, but now he describes it in his physical body as an angel appears to strengthen him. Verse 44, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke is the only one who mentions this particular detail of Jesus' sweat becoming like great drops of blood. And it may just be Luke's way of describing Jesus' sweat as being thick, and fast in this time of great anguish. But it may mean that Jesus, in this overwhelming moment of anxiety, is experiencing a condition called hemidrosis. That's when the blood vessels that feed your sweat glands suddenly rupture, causing them to express blood. You literally sweat blood. It's one of the most powerful reactions our bodies are capable of under extreme stress. 
And that may have been the case for Jesus here. Either way, he is in such agony, it manifests physically throughout his body, drenched in sweat, terrified of what he's about to endure. But as he gets up from his prayers, and as he goes to join the disciples again, what does he find them doing? Verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. So in the face of Jesus' astounding perseverance, not my will but yours be done, we see again his disciples' weakness. He, decide, he finds them not kneeling on the ground praying for perseverance, but lying on the ground overcome with sorrow and asleep. Verse 46, he says to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, despite what Jesus is enduring, he patiently encourages them again, rise, pray, so that you might persevere. But Jesus knows that they will falter. Remember what he said, back to, uh, what he said to Simon Peter back in verse 32, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Uh, Jesus knew Simon Peter would need to repent to turn back having denied him as Lord that very night. And having done so, he was to go to the others and support them in their weakness. What have we seen throughout these verses? Christ's great strength, the disciples' obvious weakness. Praying for Simon Peter, who boasts in ignorance on the very night he will deny Jesus three times. Preparing the disciples for the necessity of his suffering, only to have them pick up swords. We're ready to fight. Persevering in agony as he resolves to love the Father and love us at the cross, only to find his disciples not praying, but sleeping. Two observations as we close. Firstly, friends, don't trust in yourself. Trust in Christ alone. I think we often think, and this is true for me, we often think we're a lot better than we actually are. Now, we, we love to compare ourselves to others quietly, to look f- for flaws that make us feel better about ourselves. Maybe if you're not a Christian here this morning, today you might even think that logic works with God as well. So many in the world believe that a Christian is just someone simply trying to be the best person that they can be, at least better than the guy next door, and if we do right by God, then eventually he'll do right by us. That's not the impression we get from these verses. As Jesus' closest disciples mess up again and again and again in foolish pride and misunderstanding, in falling asleep in the midst of temptation. And I know I'm no different. I don't think any of us are we continually come up short. None of us have persevered in loving God as we should, honored him perfectly as our creator who gave us life with our our whole heart, which is why it is such a relief to see Jesus here persevering faithfully in every way that we have compromised, declaring I will be numbered with the transgressors, I will be treated as we deserve as the innocent suffering servant who would bear our sins in perfect obedience to God, so that by his blood, we will know the promise of every sin forgiven, of life with God again. Do not trust in yourself. Trust in Christ alone. If you are yet to bow the knee to him, please do so. As the Lord who laid down his life for your sake, because there is no hope of life with God apart from him.
And for those of us who have done that, who have bowed the knee to Christ as King, well, for us, we must continue to repent and believe on him each day. Our second observation, don't be overcome by failings, but look to Christ alone. You see, much like the disciples here, again, we know as Christians, we're still prone to coming up short in our foolish pride, choosing to believe we're so much stronger than we are until we compromise and sin. And our selfish ambition, desiring worldly comforts rather than living for and suffering for Christ where necessary, in our sheer weakness, when we know we're given into temptation, despite Christ's will for our good. I know I'm guilty of all of those things. And the memory of those sins can weigh us down so much, especially when we believe lies like this one. Saw this poster online just the other day. How to be a perfect Christian. And the tagline is, you probably can't read it, your comprehensive guide to flawless spiritual living. And of course, this poster is a joke, of course, and it, is, it exposes the false belief that there are perfect, self-sufficient Christians out there who never suffer from temptation, who never compromise, no matter what. And that all of us, we're kind of at the other end of the scale as the flawed Christians who suffer from every temptation and know the pain of compromise so well. What nonsense. See how flawed the disciples are here. See how patient Jesus is with them as he still seeks to protect them despite what he is enduring to prepare them in the full knowledge that they would still compromise. They would abandon him for a time. And yet that did not dissuade him from going to the cross to pay for their sins. Christ knows our every compromise. That did not dissuade him from going to the cross for our sins. The proof that we belong to him and that he is for us isn't found in this unrealistic notion of a sin-free, ever-victorious life. But in our daily habit of repenting and believing on Christ who died to deal with it all. And as we do that, as his people, as we rejoice in him as our security and not ourselves, whether it be our successes or our failings, As we rejoice in him, we will grow up in our faith. We will appreciate his love for us all the more so that we no longer desire the miserable sin that he has saved us from. And instead, we will grow up to enjoy the freedom of knowing Christ as Lord, strengthened by his spirit to put sin to death and to live for him relying on him, living for him each day. So friends, stop obsessing over your past failures. Stop pretending that you are the only Christian who struggles. And instead, keep on looking to Christ. Encourage one another to do the same, knowing that as we do that together as a church, he is the one who will see us through by the power of his grace to the day when we will be at rest with him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this testimony from Luke that you have inspired by your Spirit that speaks of Jesus' final hours before the cross. We thank you for the way that it testifies to his unquestionable strength and faithfulness in the face of of his disciples' weakness. 
We thank you for the encouragement that is for us who trust on him that he knows our failings and is able to bear with us that he has indeed in great love paid the price we deserve for our every sin. Help us, Lord, to keep on looking to him as our only security in life and death, to not be so foolish to look to ourselves, to take pride in our achievements. Help us to keep on looking to him, knowing that that way we will grow by the power of his grace to be the people that he has saved to be, and he will bring us to the finish line. We ask these for Jesus' sake. Amen.